Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Ann Lipton, Associate Professor in Business Law and Entrepreneurship at Tulane University. We'll be discussing her essay, Inside Out, or One State to Rule Them All, New Challenges to the Internal Affairs Doctrine, which is forthcoming in the Wake Forest Law Review. I'll add a link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. And welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. And your essay discusses some new challenges to the internal affairs doctrine. So just to level set with the listeners, I wondered if you could maybe introduce just what is the internal affairs doctrine and what are perhaps its historical origins? Sure. Okay. So the internal affairs doctrine is an unusual choice of law rule that exists exclusively when you're dealing with business entities. You have to understand first, when people have contracts, when they make deals, very often more than one state is involved. Maybe the two people live in different states or the items are being shipped across state lines, stuff like that. So if there's a dispute about what the contract requires, you have to make a choice as to which state's law will apply if there's a difference in legal systems. And usually the rule is that the state with the biggest interest in the dispute, their law is the one that will control. Parties can contract around that. They can put a clause in their contract that says, actually, we would prefer the law of Illinois to apply to this dispute. And courts will generally respect that, but only up to a point. There are certain kinds of mandatory rules that you simply can't contract out of because one state's interest is just too fundamental. So for example, if I'm an employee and I'm working in California and California is a certain minimum wage, the employer can't get out of that by putting in the employment contract oh, we'll select the law of Utah and for their minimum wage. So there are some things that you simply have to follow the law of the state where you're in because it's very important to that state for its policies. The internal affairs doctrine is a really unique choice of law rule. And it says that for any business entity that's organized in a particular jurisdiction, Delaware, for most publicly traded companies, California, if you charter your company in that state, then all matters pertaining to the internal governance of the company will be dictated by the chosen state's law, no matter where you do business. So a lot of companies, they have essentially a mailbox in Delaware. Delaware gives them their charter. So they're organized in Delaware. They put up a mailbox in Delaware. All of their substantive operations are elsewhere, but their internal governance matters are entirely dictated by the law of Delaware. And we don't ask whether another state is a greater interest. We don't ask whether, wait, all your employees, all your shareholders, all your business operations are in California. Maybe California's law should rule. Instead, we say Delaware's that law is the law that controls. So it's a much more powerful choice of law rule than what you would have in an ordinary contract. Now, historically, the reason for that rule was essentially because originally corporations, business entities that were created by a chartering state were very similar to essentially a state agency. A state would charter a company to build a bridge or create some other kind of public work. And state officials would sit on the board of the company and the company's operations were entirely within that state. And at that time, the grant of a charter 
was essentially the way of regulating it. It would have all kinds of rules for how it would operate, like price caps. It maybe could only last for 10 years, minimum capitalization requirements. All that was the way that the state regulated the corporation by granting it a charter and allowing it to exist. Of course, that chartering state's law was the law that applied to the company. What else would it be? It was practically a state agency. Over time, corporations became more business-oriented, less like state agencies, and they began to do business across state lines. But that old concept remained that the chartering state, its law would govern how the company's internal affairs, what are known as internal affairs, essentially the how their corporate governance would be organized, would be dictated by the law of the chartering state, even though the original basis for that has faded away. This is, as you say, a unique provision or a unique concept in conflict of laws or choice of law. And there's some historical justifications for this doctrine, but those justifications have largely, if not entirely, fallen away. But the doctrine is still here. It still persists. And as your essay points out, it still has quite a bit of bite. With the historical justifications having fallen away, what are the legal or economic justifications for the internal affairs doctrine's continued vitality today? A lot of the time today, when people argue in favor of it, they argue it from a contractual standpoint. They say, if I choose to incorporate in Delaware, that is the equivalent of a choice of law clause in a contract. So just as I may form a contract to ship goods across state lines, and we can all agree that Delaware's law will control for that contract, I can do the same when I set up a company. I choose to charter in Delaware. That's the equivalent of choosing Delaware's law. And now it's a contract between whoever sponsored the corporation and the shareholders who invest in it. And we've all chosen Delaware to govern our relationships. And that's totally reasonable, actually. I don't object to that. But as I said at the beginning, we don't take contractual choice of law clauses as absolute. They get overridden when another state has a greater interest in the matter and the choice of law would undermine that state's fundamental policies. What's weird about the internal affairs doctrine is that it doesn't ask that. So if you justify it on the grounds that essentially this is a contractual arrangement among investors and managers, then it should be capable of being overridden when another state um, has something more important connections to the dispute. And that's just not how the internal affairs doctrine operates today. And the problem is that because the exact scope of the internal affairs doctrine is a little fuzzy, it's not clear exactly what falls within it. It threatens, I argue, to really wallow other states' policies more and more for a variety of reasons, including some states, I think, just don't like to get into it, don't like to deal with corporate matters, and they don't push back hard enough. And Delaware, which charters most public companies, likes to expand its power. I'd like to hear more about that potential for the internal affairs doctrine to swallow other substantive areas of law or to create conflicts. Can you talk about conflicts with non-corporate law, for example, employment law or securities law, and maybe outline some of those conflicts that might exist between states or some of that deference that might exist between states or deference to Delaware that might exist? Some pretty simple examples. For example, LLCs. The thing about corporations is that they're really heavily structured by the state. As much as people talk about corporations as contracts, there are some pretty hard and fast rules in, in corporate structure that are required by the corporate law of the state. That's not true of some of the newer entities like LLCs. LLCs are extremely contractual and they basically allow people to arrange their internal matters however they like. What has become more common is for LLCs, which are also subject to the internal affairs doctrine, you go, you file a document with the state. Delaware or another state, and you say, I would like to form an LLC, and you pay a fee, and now you have an LLC. Members of LLCs will now these days write into the governance documents 
non-compete clauses. So they'll say, if you're a member of the LLC, meaning you have a membership interest, you have to promise that you won't compete with the LLC while you're a member or for two years after leaving, and you'll have to promise to keep certain information confidential, all that kind of thing. And those theoretically are subject to the internal affairs doctrine because they're part of the LLC's structure. But very often, the people who are bound by these clauses are employees of the LLC working entirely in a completely different state than the state that formed the LLC. And states are very careful about how they regulate whether you can force an employee to sign a non-compete clause. So we've now had these disputes where an employee is compensated for their work as an employee with an investment interest in the LLC that they work for. The LLC is organizing documents say, thou shalt not compete. The employee wants to compete at some point. Their own state, their law would say this non-compete is invalid, but the internal affairs doctrine would say, actually, it's an LLC. Therefore, the internal affairs doctrine applies. Therefore, you must go to the law of, say, Delaware, where you're much more free to enter into non-competes. And it's not clear which law controls the law of where the employee is working? Do we treat this as an employment agreement or do we treat this as part of the structure of an entity, in which case it's subject to the internal affairs doctrine? So that's one example. Another would be something like California, which passed a law that said any public companies that are headquartered in the state have to have a certain minimum number of women and underrepresented community members on their boards. Now, that would be a classic violation of the internal affairs doctrine because if the company is chartered in, say, Delaware, the law dictates who you must have as your directors and basically says anyone you want. California is saying, I don't care where you're chartered. If you are publicly traded and you're headquartered in California, we want you to have a certain number of women, people of color and so forth on your boards. So the question is whether California's interest in what is essentially an employment matter about non-discrimination, you can agree or disagree with the way they went about it in terms of mandating a certain demographic board mix, but it's functionally a kind of anti-discrimination legislation, whether that should get to trump the internal affairs doctrine or not. That's another question that's being raised today. You're outlining, I think, some potential problems with the application of the modern internal affairs doctrine. And I wonder if you can maybe flesh out some of the problems with the doctrine in terms of maybe what the core concerns that you express in your essay are. Could you lay those out? Let's take California's law, for example. I think California's law is a problem, no matter how you slice it. I get what California is trying to do to elevate these underrepresented communities as directors. What's difficult is in a public company, we have some fairly strong mechanisms to make sure that public companies essentially maximize the wealth of their shareholders. That's what Delaware law is designed to do. That's what federal securities law is designed to do. When California first enacted its law saying that you have to have a certain number of women in boards, actually, it said sort of justify this as a wealth maximizing measure that somehow companies would perform better if they had women on their board. And if that was true, if that was really the motivation for the legislation, then I would say this is something that really the internal affairs doctrine should deal with. Investors choose where to incorporate because they choose a law that they think is going to maximize their wealth. And California doesn't really have any particular interest in overriding that. But if you think of it as an anti-discrimination measure and California was clearer later, then it's not clear why investors' choices about where to incorporate should override an anti-discrimination measure. That said, I have a lot of problems with California's law because if you view it as an anti-discrimination measure, it's not clear what California's interest is in public companies that are headquartered in the state, their board makeups, because just because you have headquarters in the state doesn't necessarily mean that you have all your operations or a lot of substantive operations in the state. Board members can be from anywhere in the world. They don't even have to be from California. So it's not obvious to me why California has a California-specific interest 
in diverse boards of public companies. But you could imagine a different kind of rule. You could imagine California having said, actually, we care about companies that are privately held and they're much more likely to have like most of their operations in the state, even if they're incorporated somewhere else. And there we would like to mandate diverse boards or mandate anti-discrimination because right now there's no real prohibition on discrimination for board member selection. If they did something like that, you'd have a real problem in that California would be trying to protect its own residents from discrimination. But the internal affairs doctrine would say, actually, California, you're not allowed to do that, even though Delaware has absolutely no interest, none, in whether or not there's discrimination in California. And in fact, this came up once in a Delaware corporate company that was doing business in New York and a female Asian disabled board member claimed that she was removed from the board on discriminatory grounds. And she brought a lawsuit under New York's anti-discrimination law. And the company said, actually, New York's anti-discrimination law doesn't apply because, in fact, this is a Delaware incorporated company. And that case settled. But it really shows how the internal affairs doctrine could interfere with states' attempts to eliminate discrimination within their territory. The internal affairs doctrine is a choice of law doctrine, and we usually see that in the context of contracts, or we often see that in the context of contracts. And in the essay, you talk about the contractarian theory or framing of corporate relationships, whether it's a traditional corporation or an LLC, as really driving a lot of what's going on here. You talk about that, and you've written both in this essay in the past about this contractarian theory and refuting it to, in some context. Can you talk about how that theory has helped perhaps drive the contemporary application of this doctrine? The example I deal with is again is Delaware, which I just feel like it just it's claiming more and more space for itself, which is creating some of these problems. There was a slow evolution, but basically what Delaware has recently allowed corporations to do is adopt bylaw or charter provisions that dictate that shareholder litigation against the company has to be brought in a particular forum, like in a Delaware state forum or a federal forum for some kinds of claims. Like it allows companies to put in their charters and bylaws. If any shareholder sues, it has to be in a particular forum. It has also opened the door for them to adopt bylaws that would say if a shareholder sues, then open the door anyway. P potential for a charter bylaw provision that would require cases to be brought in arbitration. We haven't actually seen companies do that, but they may be inching towards it or not for public companies anyway. And this would be true even for non-Delaware claims. Like it's one thing if Delaware says, all right, you're a Delaware incorporated company. We created the cause of action. We're allowing you to put in your charter and bylaw that Delaware claims have to be brought in arbitration or Delaware claims have to be brought in the Delaware court. But that's actually not what they say. They've now allowed companies to do this for antitrust claims if a shareholder brings an antitrust claim against the company or federal securities claims, which are not Delaware law at all. If a shareholder brings a federal securities claim, the company is allowed to say that claim has to be brought in a particular forum by passing a charter or bylaw provision. And Delaware's logic is charters and bylaws are contracts. And just as I could sign a contract that says any disputes between us must be brought in arbitration, just as I could sign a contract that says any dispute between us has to be brought in a particular forum, it's fine if a company wants to put in its charter or bylaw, any securities claim has to be brought in a particular court. Now, the reason that I find that deeply problematic is because corporations and bylaws and charters are not contracts. They aren't. They are it in really important ways. The corporate form, as I said before, is structured by Delaware law or the law of the incorporating state in ways that contracts simply or not. So some obvious examples. 
shareholders are not allowed to propose charter provisions. They're simply not allowed to under legally not allowed to. They may not propose a charter provision. There is no ordinary contract where the law says one side is legally disabled from proposing an amendment to the contract. But that's what we do in corporations. Additionally, in corporations, directors have fiduciary duties to the company. That means they both can't make amendments or propose amendments to the company's charter or bylaws or pass bylaws or enforce charter provisions or bylaws unless they adhere to their fiduciary duties. And those fiduciary duties are defined by Delaware law. Again, very different from an ordinary contract where within the contract, as long as I live up to my contractual obligations, I'm allowed to act in my own self-interest. But that's not true for a director. They have fiduciary duties to the company when they're acting in their directorial capacity, and Delaware defines what those duties are. So these aren't exactly the same as contracts, and yet Delaware is still saying that when a company adopts a provision that limits a shareholder's ability to sue them under non-Delaware law, that's going to be binding as a matter of contract. And that's just very strange because it means that now Delaware is dictating what you can put in your corporate charters, and whether or not you've complied with your fiduciary duty when doing so. Other states have heard to Delaware on this, which is now allowing companies to essentially decide where they're going to be sued for federal securities claims subject to Delaware law rules about how far they can go. And I just I think that's very dangerous in terms of allowing not simply what companies might do with this power. It's really more like handing Delaware the power to oversee how the federal securities laws are applied. The doctrine here is important, but I think that, and I read also some political economy tones from the essay, and I think that might be an area worth some exploration too. The essay in this interview, in some ways, thinking about Delaware as increasing its scope or the power of its corporate law, and perhaps California as somewhat of a stand-in for other states as potentially pushing back against that, although maybe giving away in other contexts, I wonder if you can talk about this political economy story, maybe thinking about Delaware and California as our stand-ins. Apart from just the doctrine that we've discussed, what does Delaware as a state, as a polity want, or what does it want to avoid? And what does California as a state want? Here's my instinct on this. So Delaware, I think, wants to, has a very strong feelings that it should really control old corporate law in ways that I think really go beyond what's appropriate. It's already essentially controls national corporate law, which is a problem because I don't get to vote in Delaware. Like I, I'm, I just have a general problem with one tiny little state dictating this much of the nation's economy. But beyond that, it obviously, it wants to expand its control over corporate disputes. And I think a lot of Delaware judges, among my concerns, and they are many, is that Delaware judges are actually not experts in federal securities law. They're experts in corporate law, but they aren't experts in federal securities law. And you can see that coming out in the opinion. Sometimes they say things that are just not correct under federal securities law. And the more that Delaware takes control over, say, how companies contract under federal securities law claims, the more chances there are, I think, for distorted rulemaking. But I think ultimately what Delaware wants is to maintain its status as the maker of corporate law and the dictator of corporate law. And it may be concerned about losing some of that power to other states. California, it's complicated because I feel like a lot of the times when these things get started, say, with federal securities claims, bylaws that limit federal securities claims, say, when they get started, what happens is that a lot of courts, and this is true in California and in other states, they tend not to like federal securities litigation very much. It has a poor reputation as being strike suits or nuisance suits. They tend to be 
okay with Delaware taking control of corporate cases and taking cases off their docket. They're very busy. So they tend not to push back too much at these little incursions. But the problem that I see isn't just those incursions themselves, but once you get started down that path, it's very hard to get off the path. Starts by saying you can choose a forum for federal securities claims like Delaware Chancery or federal forum for federal securities claims. And then it becomes the companies start choosing Delaware Chancery to hear claims. And Delaware Chancery, this is a dispute that's ongoing. Companies have selected claims have been brought in Delaware Chancery. Problem is that Delaware Chancery doesn't have jurisdiction to hear certain kinds of federal claims. If you enforce that bylaw, suddenly the claim can't be heard at all and it's functionally a waiver. Courts have started to enforce those bylaws. The next step is inspection rights. California grants very broad inspection rights, meaning a shareholder can look at the internal corporate documents. It has a very broad ability to do that. Delaware, it's more narrow. A shareholder has limited rights to look at corporate documents. So what's begun happening is companies are making employees sign contracts and startup companies. They're compensated in corporate equity, and they often have to sign contracts that sign away their inspection rights. If the company is incorporated in Delaware, but the company itself is doing business in California, do we go with California's inspection rights rule or do we go with Delaware's inspection rights rule? Delaware would say it's an internal affairs question if it's a Delaware incorporated company. But California has all these startup employees. There's all these startups, these tech startups, they're in California. This is essentially how their workforce is being compensated. In a very real way, you could say these employees' access to internal corporate documents in California is much more of interest to California as an employment measure, not simply as stockholders, but as employees of California companies, they're being compensated with stock. They should have a right to know what their compensation is worth. My fear is that That's something that California could very well have a real interest in. It'll wake up to it having that kind of interest, but it'll do that after its courts have already in various ways ceded power to Delaware because in the initial skirmishes over these kinds of things, they arise in the context of not particularly sympathetic plaintiffs federal securities litigation, all these areas where California courts are happy to get it off their plate. And then by the time it starts landing in the areas of whether employees have inspection rights, whether you can imply anti-discrimination law to directors, by that time, they've already built up a body of case law that pushes it all to Delaware. Delaware has a really concentrated interest in maintaining control over corporate internal affairs. I think California and other states, they're happy to offload a lot of these difficult questions to Delaware before they realize the way it's going to impact the things that they actually care about. So for me, it's like maintaining that border is important before it gets to that point. We've talked thus far in terms of the process or the dialectic between Delaware and other states. What's the federal government doing or what are the federal courts doing in terms of these skirmishes? Are they siding with Delaware? Are they siding with maybe what I call the California position? Is there some separate federal interest that they're trying to vindicate or what are they doing in all of this? Okay, so right now it's really uncertain. So we've got actually right now a circuit split on one of these things and a, a rehearing it's pending right now before the Ninth Circuit. My paper actually was written before the Ninth Circuit granted rehearing on Bonk on a particular case. So I criticized this case and then the Ninth Circuit granted rehearing on Bonk. And now my paper says, okay, rehearing on Bonk's pending, but I don't know if a decision is going to come down before my paper is finalized. So we'll have to see. This gets back to this issue of these bylaws. A couple of companies adopted bylaws that said, 
all derivative litigation has to be handled in Delaware Chancery now because they're incorporated in Delaware. Now, most derivative litigation are state law claims, but sometimes derivative litigation is brought under the federal securities laws. So if you apply that bylaw to the federal securities laws, it would require that derivative claims brought under the federal securities laws be heard in Delaware Chancery. And as I said, Delaware has allowed companies to adopt bylaws that do forum selection for federal securities claims. Even though they're not Delaware claims, you can put in your bylaws, federal securities claims will be heard in a particular forum. The problem is that Delaware Chancery cannot hear federal securities claims brought under the Exchange Act. Simply doesn't have jurisdiction. Those are federal claims that say jurisdiction is exclusively federal. So if you take a bylaw that says all derivative claims have to be brought in Delaware Chancery and you apply it, to an Exchange Act claim, a derivative claim brought under, say, Section 10B, which is the big anti-fraud statute, or a derivative claim brought under Section 14, which is about false statements in proxy statements, and you apply a forum selection provision that says it has to be brought in Delaware Chancery, Delaware Chancery can't hear it. If you enforce the bylaw, you're functionally saying shareholders can't bring that claim at all. They simply cannot bring these derivative federal claims. So the question is whether or not these bylaws are enforceable. What's happened is we've now got something of a circuit split pending the rehearing. The Seventh Circuit held these bylaws are not enforceable. You cannot say you must bring your Section 14 claims, Section 14 dealing with proxy fraud. You cannot force shareholders to bring a derivative Section 14 claim in a Delaware Chancery Court where Delaware Chancery has no jurisdiction to hear it. The Seventh Circuit refused to enforce that bylaw, but it did so on very odd grounds, to some extent saying that it interpreted those bylaws as a violation of Delaware law. The Ninth Circuit enforced such a bylaw. So the Gap had a bylaw that said all derivative claims have to be brought in Delaware Chancery. Shareholders brought a federal derivative claim saying that there was proxy fraud. And a district court said that bylaw was enforceable. Derivative claims had to be brought in Delaware Chancery where they could not be heard, which was functionally meant the shareholders couldn't bring that claim at all. On appeal to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit agreed. It said, we will enforce this bylaw as written. It's a contract. Delaware enforces these contracts. We're done here. And they just granted rehearing on that. So now we're waiting to see whether or not companies can adopt a forum selection bylaw for Federal Exchange Act claims That would essentially throw shareholders out of court by making it impossible for their claims to be heard at all. I mean, there's so many different directions the Ninth Circuit could go. It's rehearing on bug. But some of the arguments that the companies are making wouldn't limit it to derivative claims. It would be any claim at all. If the company's arguments were to be accepted, you could pass a bylaw that said all Federal Exchange Act claims of any kind have to be heard in Delaware Chancery. And where, of course, they cannot be heard. So it would functionally be a waiver of shareholders' ability to bring those claims. And if the Ninth Circuit says this is enforceable or this is okay, then the only limit is going to be something like Delaware deciding whether or not these bylaws are consistent with Delaware law, which just gets back to my problem of all of this ends up giving Delaware final authority over federal securities claims. If the federal courts agree that's appropriate, then, you know, the next stage is whether Delaware also agrees it's appropriate, which becomes the super administrator, or whether finally either the SEC or Congress step in. Do you see any ways forward to get us out of some of these areas of problem or concern? And are there any takeaways you'd like listeners to have from your essay and from this interview? The thing is that the internal affairs doctrine has been essentially 
problem, I think, theoretically for like over 100 years. And I wish I could say, and I have solved it. I have finally written the paper that completely solves the problem, but I absolutely have not. It's more guidelines that I want courts to be more aware of. And one of the things that I ask for is that Delaware be more modest in claiming territory, which is never going to happen. But then other courts also push back that maybe you're not sympathetic to federal securities claims, but you shouldn't just be thinking about federal securities claims. If you say a corporation is a contract and a bylaw is the equivalent of a contract provision, think about what that actually means in terms of the power that you're handing to Delaware to set the terms of what contracts are and how you're taking that away from the home state. So it's really more like I put forward a set of guidelines. The reason it's a difficult problem is because there is a core of truth and real functionality of the internal affairs doctrine. If you think of a corporation as essentially a private entity that very often will have thousands, millions of shareholders in a public company, something like that, these are a lot of people involved and having a stable rule for how the affairs will be governed is very useful. And figuring out exactly when that rule should be overcome by another state is very difficult, very case by case, can create a lot of uncertainty within a company that has so many different players that are involved. And that's part of the reason why the internal affairs doctrine has persisted, essentially, because it's hard to think of what the alternative should be. But I do think that courts, especially outside of Delaware, need to be more careful about when they're willing to defer to Delaware and when they shouldn't. That, I think, is really the biggest takeaway that I think that outside of Delaware, courts need to be more careful about just rather than simply saying, oh, it's Delaware, it's corporate Delaware locks can control. They need to be thinking about what that actually means in terms of the kinds of power that they're handing to Delaware and when it's going at they're creating a body of precedent that's going to take over employment law, securities law, even if the very first incursions occur in the context of a plaintiff who you just don't think has a very good claim substantively. If you think they don't have a good claim substantively. Don't say the forum selection bylaw is enforceable. Say that the claim gets dismissed. And I think that in terms of takeaways generally, we really do need to think about exactly what is a corporation, especially a corporation, but also some of these other entities. Are they state-created entities? In which case, the arrangements within them are very much a product of state regulatory power. Are they private arrangements among the people who are participating? And how much should they complete freedom of contract among those private arrangements? And how much shouldn't they? That's really the questions that are in the internal affairs doctrine generally. And those are the questions I raise in my paper. Our guest today has been Ann Lipton, Associate Professor in Business Law and Entrepreneurship at Tulane University. We've discussed her essay, Inside Out, or One State to Rule Them All, New Challenges to the Internal Affairs Doctrine, which is forthcoming in the Wake Forest Law Review. I'll have a link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. And thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.